Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private Marcelino Cerna. Cerna would fight in the First World War with Bravo Company, part of the 355th Infantry Regiment rolled up under the 89th Infantry Division. Cerna was born in Mexico and would immigrate to the United States in 1916. He would be identified in 1917 for deportation, but that's also the year where um, the United States declares war on Germany and we start mobilizing troops to go fight on the Western Front. So before he can be picked up or before his deportation goes forward, Cerna volunteers to enlist and manages to make it through basic training, joins his unit, and gets all the way overseas before anybody realizes that he's not a U.S. citizen. So he's at that point approached by his commander who says, you know, as a Mexican national and not a U.S. citizen, we can't force you to be here. You're welcome to go home. Now, in fairness, I don't know what that would have meant because he was on the verge of, of being deported. He, he might have just walked back into that situation. But nonetheless, he answered as so many folks in this type of situation have throughout history. He's gone through training with these guys there. He's made friends. They're on the brink of going into combat for the first time. And he says, I'd like to stay. So he does. He stays knowing what they're getting ready to jump into. Now, we're talking the, the event we're going to talk about takes place in September of 1918. The war would end in November of 1918. So we're, you know, two months out from the end of the first world war, but that's not clear on the ground. You know, if you look at other wars, sometimes, you know, let's say the second world war, there was a point where the U S forces crossed, crossed into Germany and it was, a retreat. The German army was in full retreat. It was, we were just waiting. It was just how soon could Berlin fall and the war would be over. The, the end wasn't in question. It was just a matter of time. That wasn't the case in the first world war. It wasn't clear that one side was definitely going to win or lose at all. I mean, really up until the armistice was signed, it was probably pretty well understood that Germany couldn't win, especially with the United States entering with the amount of manpower and equipment they brought to the fight. But Germany could hold on in a defensive position for longer. And remember those defensive positions that Germany was holding were in France. They were, they were still holding occupied territory and if the U.S. and France and Great Britain wanted to take that back, it would probably cost you know a million more lives. It, it, so to think that in even in the fall, a month, two months before the armistice is signed, to think that the war is almost over isn't guaranteed. And remember, throughout the war, people have been saying we'll be home by Christmas or this will be the offensive that ends it. In fact. Just a few months prior to this, the Germans launch an offensive. It doesn't go well, but they launch an offensive to end the war. It's kind of a last-ditch effort before the Americans arrive. But 
nonetheless, there's constantly the thought of this is going to be the thing that ends it. So it's not a surprise when it ends in November 1918, but we can't say that everybody saw it coming and that we knew that it was right around the corner. So anyways, by the time the Americans land, they're only going to end up fighting for about six months. But, you know, as they're landing, there's there's nobody that knows that. Now, life in the trenches for a lot of reasons was pretty horrible. There was, we have, you know, these battles where folks would go over the top of, it wasn't battle after battle. There were a lot of big battles where guys would go over the top and, and charge the enemy forces and um, maybe overrun the trench, maybe, maybe not. A lot of death and destruction. But also just everyday life in the trenches was deadly. There were, there was a lot of sickness and disease in the trench itself, but various sectors had different things they had to deal with. And a couple of major ones would be artillery. So just because there wasn't a major offensive going on didn't mean that the enemy wasn't lobbying the occasional artillery around your trench. And that could kill one, two, three, 20 soldiers. So it's an, you know, people were dying every day, not just during the major battles. Artillery is a big piece of it, but snipers are also doing their part to whittle now they have a few purposes. They're whittling America. They're whittling enemy forces because it's happening on both sides, but not materially, right? So even if a sniper knocks out three, four guys in a day, that's not materially changing the enemy structure. What it does is it makes life even more miserable because some of these snipers were tasked with sitting there and just watching for anything to poke above ground. And when it did, they'd take a shot and, and potentially kill whoever it is that, that came up. So life already sucks in the trenches. And now you've got people monitoring nonstop certain areas. It wasn't across the entire front, but a lot of snipers out there just waiting for somebody to make that mistake and poke their head up and bam, they're dead. The snipers wouldn't always sit in trenches. In a lot of cases, they'd be out in no man's land, hidden amongst the debris that was in that area, or in some cases they even used old trees. They'd be, it would, it would look like a, uh, a blown out old tree. There'd actually be a sniper standing in there that could look a little bit into enemy trenches, or at least had a better vantage point than sitting in their trench. So on September 12th, 1918, Cerna and his unit start to come under sniper fire and Cerna notices the sniper season. That's not super common. Like I was saying, they, they usually do a pretty good job of, of hiding themselves. But Cerna sees the sniper and starts firing back with his just regular rifle. So what that means is that he's within range. If he can shoot the sniper, then he's at risk of getting shot by the sniper, right? He wounds the sniper and the German starts making their, uh, starts retreating. He could have stopped there, but instead Cerna got up and followed the sniper. Because where's he going to go? Well, he's going to go back to his lines. And we tend to think of the trenches in the First World War as running parallel all up and down the front, but they didn't. They were, they'd be dips and turns and they'd be cut in certain areas and not around others. And they were far from right across from one another. So in a lot of cases, it wasn't super clear where the enemy's trench was. You knew it was out there somewhere, but remember, it's not like there's signs pointing to it above ground. It's designed to be hidden. So Cerna gets up and, and watches this sniper start to crawl back towards frame lines, and he stalks him, if you will, follows from a distance, 
and he watches him duck down into a trench opening. It gives away the German's position. So Cerna sneaks up right to the lip of the trench and starts lobbing grenades into the German trench. They're not expecting it. They don't know that there's an American right above, right above their position. And in short order, Cerna's grenades kill 26 German soldiers. I mean like that. It's chaos. There's an attack. They're under attack and they don't know from where or from who. So Germans start stepping forward saying, I want to surrender. And by the time they've all come out ready to surrender, Cerna captures 24 prisoners of war by himself. One man, one man just killed 24 Germans and captured, just killed 26, captured 24. One knocked out 50. Cerna marches the his new prisoners back to American lines where they are taken into uh, custody. I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but processed as prisoners of war. And he's put up for the Distinguished Service Cross, which he'll be awarded, and he'll be the first Mexican-American to receive that, which is awesome. There, at the time, he was told that he's a private. He was told that a couple things. One that I know isn't true, and the other might have been, but... He was told that he couldn't get a Medal of Honor as a private, so that's why he wasn't put up for it. That, I know, isn't true. And then his commander said, you don't know enough English to be promoted to private first class. I don't know if that's true or not. I guess it makes sense if that you have to have some level of English skills to, to get promoted, I would think. But either way, those are the reasons given to, where, to why it wasn't a Medal of Honor. Now... Cerna would survive the war. He got wounded right at the end, like four days left in the war. He, he was wounded, kind of a near miss, but makes it back home, um, becomes a citizen in 1924 and would live in the United States the rest of his life, passing away in 1992 at the age of 95. Now, a couple times since he passed, the cause has been brought forward to upgrade his Distinguished Service Cross to a Medal of Honor, um, at least two occasions, maybe three. It hasn't been successful um, any of those times. I don't know the, the specific reasons, but nonetheless, I'm sure it'll happen again. I'm sure somebody else will take that forward and, and try again to see if they can get it elevated. But, I mean, even if it isn't, it's a heck of an award. The Distinguished Service Cross second only to the Medal of Honor for incredible actions on September 12, 1918 by Private uh, Marcelino Cerna, the first Distinguished Service Cross presented to a Mexican-American. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.